The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. Dr. Christy Dina, a writer, designer, director who has worked on award-winning interactive and multi-art form projects. Since the 1990s, she has been developing, researching and teaching multi-platform projects where the digital plays a key role. She has run online events, 30 plus online studios for interdisciplinary and international artists and consulted to organisation, agencies and companies. Welcome Dr. Christy Dina. I hand over to you. <laughs> thank you very much, um, Debbie. Thank you very much for the introduction and for the uh, invitation from Guildhouse, you know, to, to come along and give this presentation about this topic of rituals of online artist processes. I am sitting before you uh, with a brunette, long brunette hair. I have a green shirt on with a little sort of a fabric badge of what looks like a tiny tree, but it could also be a broccoli, I'm not sure. And behind me is a bookcase, and all of the books are ordered as a vertical rainbow. That took a while, but I, I enjoyed I enjoyed doing that. But that is my background here. So I'm going to be endeavoring to do audio description throughout. And that is one ritual or practice that the disabled community has has given us is to describe ourselves because there are very different ways of people um, experiencing a place um, and uh, an event um, and to acknowledge that some people will be working more on the audio um, or even the text descriptions of it. And I'm also joining you from Boon Wurrung country, which is uh, also known as around the southeast area of Melbourne at this point. And around me are a whole lot of beautiful trees and flowers that are there, but they were planted by settler colonialists. And so I want to recognise that I am on unceded land and that the elders that have been here before are still here, still present. Um, and they will always be here through time, including those that are emerging. And I am joining that story for a brief period of time in this big time of this planet as this person, Christy. And this ritual approach of, um, of practice, um, this acknowledgement of country, is a ritual that the First Peoples have given to us here, have asked uh, us of us here, but it is also drawing from an ongoing ritual of, of practice that they've had for a very long time, which is a welcome to country, when someone comes into their space to welcome to country. And in this online context, you can share where you have come from as well. So if anyone wants to share the country that they are joining from, and if you don't know, I'm just going to put in the chat a link to nativeland.ca um, and that's a site that uh, lets you know all of the countries around all of the native lands around the world it's not 
um, explicitly accurate. I, I can't do, uh, Cynthia's put, just put a question up. Um, I, is, it, is it a welcome to play? So country is, uh, is in the indigenous culture, and I'm not, I'm not speaking for them, I'm speaking for what I know uh, to answer that question, is country um, does not align to the same way that uh, the white person understanding of a country is. Country is a place, uh, but it's also everything that is on that place and it's the connection uh, to it. There is no separation of, of a, um, a, a, different, a different land and, and it's not country in the usual sense of a, a whole country. Um, it is uh, more of a localised experience. So yes, so we have some more hopping in there in the chat, which is great. And I just want to add here that to me, this is a reminder that we are joining from many colonised lands um, around this world um, that are on this planet at this moment. And that's what's different about our online space is that uh, we're meeting from many lands, from many countries and from many time zones. And I can see more um, being added in there, which is great. Whereas before we travelled to come to a place, to one place and to one time, it seems, we're now physically in many places and in many times at once. We, we are maintaining where we are and we are joining, you know, um, those places. We are not all moving to one place and one time. This is a, a different context of being that we're experiencing there. So this is part of our new rituals, if you like, um, to acknowledge that where we are coming from, but also to coexist in the many places and times that we come from. So if you like, look around your space that you have now, look around, because part of this ritual is not just acknowledging, uh, especially in our colonialist countries, the fact that we are on unceded land, um, but also connecting to place. So if you look around now for something in your space that you can share in the chat as something that is there. So it might be a cat, it might be a plant, whatever it is. So I can see some trees outside. So I can see some green trees. And I've also got my blue spectacles. So I put them into the chat. And that's something that I'm offering as a gathering token to our shared space from my space to our shared space here. And if you liked, you can share something from your space as well. <laughs> we've got a dog, uh, Mazzy. We've got some rain falling. We've got a glass heart from a friend, which is beautiful. A garden view with books and ceramic vessels. A red apple, yum. Hot stove, party-sized Doritos, this is fantastic. Silver champagne bucket, bees on the flowers outside. A jewelry bench shell, unfinished paintings. So these are all the spaces that we are bringing together. We've got movie posters, blossom tree, wonderful. Thank you, everybody. Um, and I'd like to also share another kind of um, acknowledgement of country. And this one is from um, Vanessa Andrietti. Uh, and Vanessa speaks of the importance of stating that the local community that she comes from are keepers of the language and that the language is very much alive. So a ritual practice in some places is to say that the language of the people of this country, the first peoples of this country, is very much alive. Um, and regarding her Brazilian community, some of the things that she says 
uh, when she doesn't acknowledge to land or what her community says um, are these, and I'll read them out. Acknowledgement of the land as a living entity, not as property or resource. It's something that sustains us and we are an extension of the land rather than the other way around. Acknowledgement that there has been a lot of violence, systemic, historical, ongoing violence that is required for us to be here and that is unsustainable. And I'm paraphrasing some of these here. Acknowledge that our ancestors may have planned what is going on right now and also our family. Acknowledge that we are all part of the same metabolism that is currently sick and we have to meet in the responsibility for healing and for healing each other. So I wanted to share those as another way um, of acknowledging not just the land that we were on and the state that we're in and the connection to country, but the global state that we find ourselves in um, and the purpose that we find ourselves in, because that connects with why I'm giving this talk and you know why I'm sharing the thoughts um, that I have with you. Um, and it reminds me of a quote by Naomi Klein that she said recently, which is, our job is to kick open the door of radical possibilities as wide and as long as possible. And that's why I'm here. So we have these beginning rituals of practice. Another one is the bio. So Deb read out my bio, which I wrote uh, and I gave to her. And one of the things with artist bios is that they are designed to communicate um, according to a particular values and worth and identity about what everyone sort of thinks is important um, often. And it sets us in a kind of type. It solidifies us into a way of being, an agreed way of being. And so one of the things that I do to try and break open that is a ritual called keyword bio. Uh, and that's where I ask for a keyword, any keyword, and I will tell you a story revealing about myself to basically move beyond um, the levels of, of uh, masks that, you know, that we have in terms of our identity. So if anyone was to put a keyword, any keyword into the chat and whatever comes to mind about how it's connected to me, I will share a short, a short little story in there. We've got bag, we've got rainbow, we've got birds, we've got plant, yep. Okay, so bag, bag comes to mind with bag. My favorite, I have a photo of myself when I was in primary school and I had a Smurf bag that I was very proud of. It was a big green backpack that had Smurfs on it. And I used to wear pigtails um, quite a lot. And there's photos of me sporting my Smurf bag. And I used to spend a lot of time making games with Smurfs. Um, I have a younger brother, he is just on two years younger than me. And we grew up in a single parent household. And so all of us were, were very close. And my brother and I were always making and playing together. And so we used to get chessboards and Smurfs and tiles and just bits of materials from all over the place. And 
invent little games to make together with all of these things. One of the things that I used to make quite a lot was food making machines and I would try and force my mum to eat the food. So apologies to my mum who's now passed, but um, but yeah, and so that that's what that sparks for me is memories of that. And that those, those making of playing with all of those things has stayed with me, um, but I suppressed it for a long time and I've come back to it. And it's part of what I'm working on now is unraveling why so much of that was suppressed in my practice, why I thought there had to be particular ways of being, why, why I forgot those ways of just making with any anything that I wanted to that was out there. So yeah, so that's a little keyword bio where you sort of scratch beyond the surface, you know, of, of what is actually there. And I want to share now to the, the angle that I'm working with with this talk and what we're what we're looking at today. I want to make it clear how I approach the learning context from what I offer here because it, it relates to one of the changes that I've that I've gone through uh, and relates to the changes in, in how I approach my art practice. For many years I've searched for a way to understand the positioning of works that seek to transform, that's that seek to change the world in some way. Uh, it's an important question for me because in the context of the world and the suffering that is around there, I, that is everywhere, including in myself, I want to play a role in alleviating that suffering and doing that through, I made a choice to do that through my artistic practice, which includes for me this nonfiction work. I don't want to perpetuate suffering with anything that I create in this world. So some call it the difference between entertainment and between art. Art changes and entertainment maintains that's the idea that's part of the world that I come from but one of the one of the art forms that I work in is games and there's a terminology there of serious games and deep games as a kind of different kind of game that's designed for long-term change um, beyond a momentary emotional shift in the work and I struggled because these categorizations mean that change can only happen in those kinds of works when you actually design for change. It means that every other creative project is benign um, unless it's designed intentionally for change. But we can be moved by games that are just for fun. We can be not moved by games that are made for deep reflection. We can be moved by entertainment and we can be unmoved by art. And so I realize now that all works have a co-creative force, whether it's an artistic uh, production, whether it's a nonfiction part, part, uh, moment like this, whether it's a conversation with someone in the street, everything has a strong co-creative force. So what does that mean for how I create? So I no longer design for change in the ways that I have before. I no longer try and figure out where other people are at what is the transformation I need for them to make or even um, then to design my work around what I want them to do. I don't do that anymore. I believe that change is voluntary. It's an act of willful, uh, joyful transformation. And any change that's not voluntary is oppression or it's conformity or it's complicity. And these ways of change are unfortunately the dominant mode in the majority of the world. Everyday life 
is about persuasion and coercion, not experimentation and co-creation. But when change is perceived as a voluntary act, then I can't teach you certain things. I can't teach you what to change about yourself. I do not define what you learn. Only you can define what you learn. So instead, I offer what has changed me, and they are prompts to you. So you'll find some things that resonate you may have already, and some things that confirm what you're already doing, some things that don't resonate at all. And in essence, some things that will possibly meet you. And I came up with the phrase, meet me, uh, to explain how we both may meet about certain things because of the work that each of us has put in. This happens to me at a certain point in time. We cannot connect without the work that you've already done. There is work that both of us are reaching towards. So if something resonates, if something meets you, it's because of the energy you've already channeled into that area. Um, and this meet me concept is something I came up for, uh, with from a couple of moments. And I'm gonna share an image now. So here up on the screen, um, I have the words meet me and I have two photos. And on the left-hand side is a motorcyclist um, driving on the road with his arms stretched out. And on the right-hand side is a wave, um, a big ocean wave. So the left is actually a photo of a character, Jax, some of you may be familiar with, um, played uh, by Charlie Hunnam uh, from the finale of the TV series, uh, Sons of Anarchy. Uh, and the photo is partially reflected below as well. Um, he has his uh, um, arms out. Um, behind him are actually a whole lot of police that are chasing him. And in front of him is actually a truck that is coming straight for him. And this moment is a mirror of the first scene from at the beginning of the series, which I think was, what, eight seasons ago. And it's one when the beginning of the series when he was entering into his responsibilities and this final one is when he is finally free something that he has struggled with throughout the series i watched this a few years ago after uh binging uh on the entire series and i was a crying mess at this scene it hit me really deeply and i wondered um why there wasn't so much discussion about the depth of this moment out there and then i realized that it was so profound because of what I was going through in my life at the time. I was pouring my life questions and emotions into this series. I was open to change. And so when this scene happened, it met me. This does not mean it was designed for such a profound change or that it will work with everyone. The creatives reached out and I poured myself into it. And the other photo is an image from a video. It's a wave cresting and it's touching clouds just at the top. Um, and I've not found who the author of that uh, video is as yet. But this image came to mind earlier this year when I was thinking about my writing and I was thinking about how at times I don't feel I'm writing the words at all. They're not my concepts. Some people call it a muse. I call them my team that I work with but I've noticed that I'm not a blank page. I'm not merely transcribing what is coming to me. I'm not merely a channel. Instead, I research, I process, I create, and I meet my team. So the rising wave is me and the cloud is my team. 
we meet. So this is why I'm now fundamentally against the idea of training people in how to do creative practice in a certain way. Instead, I think what's more important is encouraging their ability to find what resonates, so what rings true for them in that moment, whether it be a smurf, whether it be a chassis, you know, whether it be a paintbrush, whatever that is. So online, we can move further than our immediate social environment. We do not have to connect with people that identify with a certain art form and a certain way of making. Instead, we can connect with everyone that is drawn to the ideas, drawn to what rings true for them at this time. So this brings me to the next change that I wanna share. And here I have an image, uh, an illustration that says the words monoculture. And I've got an illustration of a, of a uh, little black smiling figure. It's holding up a flag with a single art form and it's standing on top of a world with lots of people holding them up. So at this time, I've seen a lot of creatives um, be known how they feel they're being forced to create differently at the moment. And, and while I understand you know, as I said, change is voluntary. <laughs> so the whole idea that you're being forced to do something, you know, is, isn't, um, isn't working. That's not a self-transformation process. But what I want to highlight is that I think a lot of this tension is potentially coming from a monodisciplinary perspective, an idea that the art, the art practice can only happen in a certain way. You don't have to identify with one medium as an artist who works in only this thing. So to have a move online in some ways doesn't mean that you're no longer an artist. I feel that this, yeah, as I said, this idea comes from a monoculture perspective where you're sort of being fixated on, on a particular way of expressing as being your way of being. But it's a belief that artistic pr practice is corrupted if you do more than one thing and it's this belief that I want to challenge along with the idea that there are lesser art forms that there is an ideal art form that you've chosen and that everything else is lesser I mean do you, you know we don't our creative experiences are cumulative rather than corruptive we're not competing for our time um, and our efforts to create, they're actually accumulating on top of each other. If you were born at a time when all the materials around you were suddenly radioactive, you wouldn't stop being an artist. A colleague once told me that being an artist is not an art form, but it's actually a way of life. So I, I have found that the negative part of actually being open to many different forms and changing and being, you know, continuously changing your, your practice, if you like. Um, it does mean that my career has a longer arc in the sense of I haven't reached the successes that one would reach if I was just focusing on one art form, but I'm enjoying weaving them into something beautiful over time. Some will see it, some won't. Yes, me being multi-art form means working in art forms that other, others deem as lesser, and it will render you, in many cases, disrespected and ignored. But I don't want to live in a kind of world that prescribes a way to make. If the idea of actually making in any form is something that rings true for you, um, then that does not make you any less an artist. And I've noticed that there's a relationship between 
attending to the diversity in the world and attending to a diversity of artistic practice. There is no ideal way of making and creating. There is not a hierarchy of art forms, ways of making or ways of being. So it's interesting that at this point of time, the walls of monodisciplinarity and ableism have been blown away like ash in the hand. They are monolithic, they are heavy, they are violent and they are strict and they are cruel, but they have dissipated so quickly with this transformation of having to move online for so many people. These transformations did not need years and years of everyone discussing uh, whether we should make a change and how to make a change. So here I want to bring in a quote from Ricky Buchanan, who gave a great talk at Platform Live, and she's self-described as a geek, creative writer, disabled, bare-ridden, queer internet citizen. Uh, and she's given me permission to share this quote with you today. And she was discussing about the online context in COVID-19. And Ricky says, I'm reading out the quote, which is on the screen. It's wonderful, but it's terrifying. It's a terrifying fact that this accessibility isn't here because the world suddenly realized that bedridden and homebound people needed it. It's here just pretty much by accident because able-bodied people needed it. We were also able to benefit from that. So it does make me very afraid that once the able-bodied people no longer need this accessibility, that it's just going to be all ripped away again, or a good part of it is going to be ripped away again. So a ritual or practice here is recognizing that when I meet people and when I create, I do so with multiplicity in mind. So I want to share with you a concept that's really helped me understand this. Um, and this is called the persona spectrum. And I have on the screen now um, some images. I've got a figure there with a cane. There's a figure with an eye patch and there's a figure looking at a screen. The persona spectrum was introduced by Microsoft. Microsoft designers, they developed this in consultation with um, disabled consultants. Now, these consultants are the ones that came up with the ideas, and it was Microsoft that developed this idea of a spectrum. The consultant spoke about how changes that are made for disabled people actually benefit everyone. This is a concept that has been, the story of impact has been known throughout history, for instance, the cutting of curbs, not just, uh, it was introduced because of the activism movements of disabled, of disabled activists, you know, basically saying we can't get our wheelchair up a curb. Um, and now people with prams and skaters and everyone benefits from that. And what the persona spectrum shows is how people can experience the world differently in a variety of ways. And there's different contexts. So for instance, we have this persona spectrum of vision. Some people may be blind from birth, um, or it could be an acquired blindness. They could be sight impaired. They may have just had some eye surgery. Um, they may not have their glasses with them, um, or they may not be able to see the screen properly um, from their phone or because of sun glare. So there's lots of contexts in which all of these activities can, can be useful for lots of people. Now, I hate that this is actually um, a helpful motivating force that being disabled is not enough, but I have to admit that this did help me to see, and I think one of the things that, it, that co these concepts do is 
they basically say none of us are able-bodied all the time. And so as soon as we normalize that, that's part of the process. And what we do online, these rituals of practice, I have the live translation there. We're doing audio description. These are the things that we need to normalize in our artistic processes. So not just diversity of artistic practices, but diversities of ways of interacting. But yeah, in an ableist world, all of these people are excluded. And so yeah, ableism harms us all. So I've transformed my artistic processes to not only plan for multiple ways of experiencing them, but to work with multiple people in the process. I'm moving away from a monoculture of practice. So here I want to bring in the concept of making space, which we'll be familiar with. I have on the screen a card illustration and a screenshot of me giving a talk. The card on the left is an early prototype for my improvisational storytelling game. It features the word scientist spy and it has an illustration of a uh, young freckled brown girl with purple hair mixing a beaker. And I was trying to make my cards diverse, but I felt it was hard to do when you can only just depict one character at a time. And this is the norm for games, when, whether they be digital or whether they be tabletop. There is a, a figure, one figure representative of a type of person. And I think that we see this with the valorizing of the portrait possibly as well, this idea of the, the, single, the single person, the single one. And in games, that single character is often a young white male or they're girls that are crafted through the gaze of those young white males. And I've realized that I can't be diverse when I'm thinking of one singular character. So I've decided to change my cards completely and now, I'm working with a, my new artist and my, you know, back to my original artist, and we're building a crowd of characters onto that card. A crowd of scientists, for instance. They have different body shapes, they have different skin colors, disabilities, religions, and more. The single hero no longer takes up all the space. Instead, more people fit. So the image on the right is from a talk that I gave earlier this year. And it features me in the same room uh, now. And it has a, a video of sign language there just to the right. And this was the first talk that I gave with um, audio description. And I realized in that talk that, that for me to fit in all that I wanted to say and to describe my slides, I had to say less. I had to literally cut words and make space. But when I talk about making space, it's not about making space in uh, my world for people to come into. That presupposes that the world I live in is a desirable one. And the problem is that people haven't been able to sit, sorry, and, and, and it conceives the problem as people haven't been able to come and sit at that table. When in actual fact, there are many tables. And there's a quote from Holiday Phillips. She shared a video on Facebook and she related story by Nigerian philosopher Bayo Akamalafe, um, who I follow as well, which you may be familiar with too. And he was giving a talk at a university and he was talking about his experiences being stopped at airports. And then one of the students came up and he said, I'm really sorry um, for all the oppressions that you experience. And I'm sorry, you know, that I have white privilege and that you suffer oppressions. And 
Theo responded in a compassionate way saying that I reject your apology. And among the things that he said, he said that in accepting your apology, I would be bowing to the story that there's only one way to have power in the world. And he continued and he says, you may not get stopped and searched at airports, but can you talk to plants? Can you talk to the ancestors through time? And, and he gives it, you know, he goes on and he gives a few, a few examples. But I just wanted to highlight these words that there are, making space is not about having someone enter into it. Um, and I'm talking about my own realizations here. You have your own and you've probably already come to this or to something else as well. And I'm, I'm not stopped in search at airports myself, although I do get stopped by a lot of leering security guards. And my mum did teach me to talk to plants. Um, but I have definitely inhaled monoculture consciousness as easy as I've inhaled the pollution in the land. And it's taken me a long time to realise why I weave and the fact that I am actually part of producing the smoke and the pollution myself. So I've found that a fruitful way of unlearning this monoculture consciousness is to not view myself as making other room for others to join me. Instead, it's about entering a space um, where I'm being with others, being with all beings. I am in truth not entering a new space. I am reframing the space that I'm already in. We're not making a new world. Everything is already here and already connected. The shift is in recognizing this. So for instance, I have a door in my other room and it's a glass door and it opens up to outside. And if I look outside, which I usually am lying on my couch, looking outside, out the windows and out this door, and I can see the breeze uh, blowing the trees. I can see the trees nodding away out there. And there's a, a wire door in there as well. And inside, I don't feel the breeze at all. But if I go outside, suddenly I feel the breeze and suddenly I can put my hand on the tree and I can feel the bark. But I've, I've not created this world. It's always been there, just one glass plane away. It does not mean also that the world that I am in, the world that I was in was wrong. It's part of the world too. But like this time during lockdown that we're experiencing right now, I'm learning that there is more to this world than where I put my attention. I sit at my desk, I lie on my couch, I wash my dishes at my sink, I sleep in my bed, I shower in the bathroom. And when I go outside, there is no new world creation, but the inclusion of more worlds um, that have just been reframed. Reframing means recognizing the frames, the doors that many humans have created. So I need the boundaries. I need to recognize the boundaries in order to actually see through them. So this brings me to another kind of um, artistic uh, ritual, polymorphic practice. And on the screen now, I have a, a black figure uh, smiling, hugging a few different media, a book and a TV and some film uh, with a little love heart bursting from it. Uh, and it's a ritual that I've called polymorphic practice. And it's, I've been, I've been working and researching in transmedia or multi-art form practice uh, overtly, you know, for almost uh, two decades. Um, I've been working for multiple decades in multiple art forms, but consciously working as a multi-platform uh, creative for two decades. 
but it's only now that I've been actively developing projects in multiple art forms before they are released. So at present, many people in uh, the world and in different countries, in different states, particularly here in Melbourne, um, um, we're not able to create in the ways that we're familiar with. It means that the way that we've been able, you know, we can't launch necessarily our projects and we can't develop our projects in the familiar ways. So I've been jumping onto what I can with the little resources that I have, with no funding, um, but with people around the world and with forms that are not the ones that I, I originally intended to make with. For instance, I've been, you know, making that imp improvisational storytelling game as a card game, as a board game, live play, as a chatbot, uh, online um, and playing online over Zoom and all of these different forms. And none of these took me further away from my idea. Instead, each new art form revealed things that my intended art form had obscured. So in the new edges, the light was shone. It reveals, I found over and over again, the assumptions and the norms of, of artistic practice. And it gives me ideas that not only work for the new art context, but then make my intended art form work even better. And it's through these continuous reframings, I think, that we can get closer to what we can create beyond a monoculture context. So online ideation. So what does this mean for ideating online, for coming up with online and sharing online? I have a figure now of a little black figure, um, uh, you know, dragging out um, some porous material. What was that? What was that stuff called? The um, that green sludgy stuff. I can't remember. But yeah, it's pouring out there. So it means connecting with people online as part of your process. And I've been doing this for years, but now there are more people that are open to collaborating online. But it means thinking about how you collaborate uh, online and who you collaborate with. The last few years I've been running um, on to, on online inter, interdisciplinary studios. And last year I was commissioned to run one for Cementa. And that involved artists from different disciplines coming together from urban, regional, inter international locations. And I found that if you work with artists across disciplines and people who don't identify as artists, that you get past the gatekeeping of norms. Monodisciplinary creatives inevitably talk about what is proper and standard and good practice for their art form. Artists from different areas can't impose these on you. They can only stretch your field of reference. But I have hit walls with funding bodies. They often require people from the same art form, um, and, but more so they require people from the same area. They have gated themselves according to art forms and areas. And so they then impose that on your art practice. But another ritual of ideation um, that I've been playing with in my online studios is to have parallel creation. So here I have um, an image of two figures um, riding arrows in parallel to each other. When um, we don't collaborate on the same project, but instead we collaborate side by side and we can briefly influence each other um, in our space. So for instance, in the online studio I ran last year, artists worked on their own projects, but shared their processes for making. And that way everyone got to see different ways of making and they got to share their process. 
with each other. So I think process share sessions are really um, are critical as a context of online making. Uh, another thing that I did was something that I called two sand pits. Uh, and this is the instruction for it. You're doing an imagining activity on your partner's project. It can be a little aspect of what they've described um, about their project or a larger idea. You're not doing this in service to the other person. You're playing with their world. Do this in your own time and in your own style. It isn't about developing their project necessarily or taking it in a recommended direction. You're not going to their sand pit and taking over and you're not taking their sand for your own. Instead, for a moment in time, two sand pits overlap. And so the artists worked on each other's worlds and did a little interesting things with them. Um, and so your own art is explored in a different way by someone else and you get to explore through someone else's art for a moment. Both of you are stretching your frames of reference. So once again, we can move through um, our, our monocultural way of uh, making. And we can easily do this online. So feedback, giving feedback is something that I've radically changed over the years as well and, with, um, and how I do it online. Despite the fact that many people think that it's impossible to sort of connect online, um, I think if you can't connect, it's because of the people, you know, that you're with or the way that you're trying to connect. It isn't, it isn't online that sets the obstacle. And one of the things that I've learned is that the default for people is often a monoculture. And here I have um, an image of a figure trying to squash a planet down into a box. If you do nothing to facilitate a different feedback culture, and the default is always um, this. And I'll, I'll list out some of the things that I've noticed. This is my context of the people that I work with, so it may not be the same for you, but this is what I've seen. The people can't give feedback according to your needs. They have to tell you what they're thinking. They can't wait to give you their feedback. Um, they have to tell you immediately. They've got no impulse control. Um, they deliver their feedback as if they're universal laws for success or for art. But ironically, they, and with that, they don't give unique feedback. Um, instead, what they say is usually repeating as something that has been told to them and something that they've read is meant to be the best way to do something. Um, they often presume that everyone seeking feedback is amateur or stupid or at the very least um, less knowledgeable than them. To them, um, if you seek feedback, you are admitting that you um, have no mastery. They're not trying to assist you in making what you want. Instead, they want everyone to fit into the same mold. They don't understand risk and vulnerability and they get self-esteem boosts with every attack that they make against um, the person. So this is what I found is the default if you do nothing to shape the feedback experience. So to counter this default feedback culture, I found um, the dancer Liz Lerman um, creative response process um, a, a wonderful interjection. Liz Lerman's process turns the tables on this default ways of being. And the thing that's important about her process that is that it's about getting to the 
artist's best work, not what other people think that the artist should do. The process begins by the artist asking a question, um, they, which, which is determined to find a statement of meaning. Um, how the work that we've just experienced um, is uh, helpful to us in some way. So we're not skipping straight to someone telling us, you know, whether they like it or dislike it and maybe what we should change. Instead, it's, we go straight to the, the meaning statement um, response. And then the artist asks questions. So we don't go straight to the feedback. The artist is basically controlling the situation and they say, I would like to know this. And through that process, what happens as a responder, as a person giving feedback, you're learning what's important to the artist. And importantly, you're being you know, forced not to just. And so with that, you might decide that the, the feedback that you thought you might give is no longer applicable. Or if you think it might be applicable, it's only then, right at the very end, that you offer some feedback. And even then, the artist could say, I'm not, you know, I'm not interested in, in hearing, you know, that feedback. So there's more details about that process. Um, and uh, I have an image um, on screen from a video that describes uh, the process and it has a whole lot of artists sitting around uh, with chairs. But I've run um, this process online many times over the last few years and I found that it's quite fruitful. But we don't have to be doing things. <laughs> when we meet online together. So I have an image here of a whole lot of people, a whole lot of those figures just, just hanging out together. You can be with each, with each other online without an objective. Um, and I've been influenced by the Indigenous idea of a yarning circle here, which I am not privy to, you know, the, the lived experience of what that is. Um, but I've done my own developments um, of that sort of notion in my online space where all of the artists have come together online and we don't have an agenda to talk about. Instead, we just play and do whatever we want to be working on. You know, some people might be playing with clay, some people might be knitting, some people might be scribbling, whatever it is. And if some thoughts or whatever emerge, then those are shared uh, with everyone. So you don't have to be on when you're online. And this is what I've noticed when I first developed online studios is that most of the efforts are all about, you know, having a meeting um, or learning something. Um, but there are other ways that we can create together. And so I just want to finish here with another insight related to this. I found actually an important goal. It's not necessarily what you're trying to achieve, but perhaps more the emotional state that you're in. That the aim is to feel a certain way rather than to do a certain thing. Um, and I have up here um, Plutchik's um, wheel of um, emotions up here. Um, and I've got the words here of the, the kinds of feelings that actually open us up to new ways of being. When we're interested, when we're jolly, when we're content, satisfied, intrigued, eager, and appreciative. These are the kinds of states which open up, open us up. 
And so ultimately, it's whatever facilitates that. So the ritual of artist processes for me is anything that enables me to be open to myself and to the world, however that happens. And for me, the online context has reframed the artistic experience to let more in uh, and, to, and to be more of me in that regard. And so um, I have a, a little bit at the end there, but I'll leave it there because I want to open it up for some thoughts. Now, I know I went through a few topics there, um, you know, in, in that uh, discussion, but, um, uh, but I'm really interested to hear, you know, your own experiences of working online too, if any of these you find um, relate to what you make or if you're doing things different, if they feel it's quite the opposite. I have a question, Christy, which is, Maybe not necessarily what you were prompting me to ask, but if you don't mind, I'll maybe mm. just get that chat ball rolling. <laughs> um, you say that you started uh, working online and using digital processes 20 years ago. I must have... No, no multi-art form. Multi-art um, form, my apologies. But you must have seen some incredible changes over 20 years. Yeah, I was just waiting to the cat. Um, yeah, yeah, so I've... I've been working remotely, yeah, for, for you know, for, for virtually the whole time because I found a lot of the people that are doing what I'm doing, a lot of them are overseas. Um, mm. And so I sort of connected with them quite early. Uh, the change that's happened now is more people are, are, are up for it. <laughs> you know? Whereas before, if you would say, you know, let's, let's meet on Zoom or something like that, or, you know, you're interested in collaborating, they were like, how can we do that if we can't meet in person? Um, it just, you know, it just wasn't an option for them. So the openness is there now mm. um, that, you know, the complete shift of like, oh, yeah, of course it's possible. Um, that's the big difference. And, of course, you know, platforms that make it really easy. You know, there are so many platforms that have opened up in the last few years for remote practice. Mm. Um, majority of them are not accessible, though. You know, they're, they're not making them um, to, to be accessible. Um, and so even though there's a great range of wonderful things, there's still only a very limited amount that you can, that you can work with if you, if you are, you know, wanting to open things up. Um, there's a question there from um, Sophia. Prompts for artists leading, oh, the feedback session. Okay, yeah. So the question was about um, uh, questions for running the feedback session. So one of the great um, questions that I use a lot is um, what does this work evoke for you? And I usually qualify that with um, what does it remind you of or what memories does it brings up for you um, or what associations come to mind with this work? And I immediately, you know, some people say, oh, I, um, I remember back at a time with my family when this happened or, or I, 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 uh, I remember the seashore and the smell of the sea. And it's always, when you go around to every person, it's completely different and it's beautiful and fascinating to, um, to, ha to have those responses. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's a strong one that I've used over and over again. And the point of that is that then as you as an artist 
see how it's not whether your your uh, project worked or not. It's about how people are experiencing. What are they doing? How are they processing the work that you have created in that moment? Because that's the crux, you know, of, of like you know what you're trying to do. And so from that, you can then usually go straight into some follow-up questions too. It's like, oh, you know, and then this, and then this. Um, but that's the that's the biggest one. I'm just quickly looking online some other questions that I've that I've used before, but that's the big one that I that I jump to. Um, and then yeah, so I find it's really helpful to have some questions prepared for myself. Um, that I want to ask, but but be open to you know uh, whatever they say, um, but but ask what is important to me, um, and drive that. And as someone who's responding, I find that process of like just having to sit back and listen and hear what the artist finds is important and how other people are experiencing it. Before I get to say anything, I immediately um, it's obvious that there are multiple ways of seeing this work. And so it suddenly undermines, you know, the great golden thing that you think you're about to say. And that's another effect, I think, of this process. You know, it makes that, uh, that, that subjectivity. Uh, and so, yeah, so the next step is you're asking the questions and then um, you open it up uh, to people offering their opinions. And the process for that is that um, ideally, what they do is they give a summary. So, um, uh, so they say, um, Sophia, um, I have some feedback about um, the brushwork or the color tones uh, or something like that. Would you like to hear it? Um, and then the artist basically says, you know, yes or not right now. And the reason why it might not be right now is it's like, um, I'm already going to deliver this brushwork, you know, or, or, you know, they might have feedback on budget. And it's like, I, I, I can't do anything about that now, right? Um, it, but it also, um, asking for permission and the state of giving permission, what that does as an artist as well, obviously, is of control of the situation. But it, in your mind, you're more open to it if you say, yes, I want to hear it. So it changes your, your frame of mind. Um, and the thing, as a person giving the feedback, what I found is when I have to summarize it, and some people cannot do that um, uh, because they just want to blurt it out. Um, and so the whole, this whole thing of like, what am I trying to say? Basically, you know, distill it down. So it's about, you know, slowing the mind down. It's like, what am I trying to say with this rather than just repeating something that I think, you know, is important for splat on them um yeah so that's some more information about that process which i highly recommend uh and you can get the ebook of that online uh and go through so yeah please learn this process so i'll i'll, I'll get to the chat um julianne hi julianne um it's um julianne oh thank you um, using the emotion wheel is a useful way to measure progress with an artwork, especially feelings of elation. But how do you factor in doubt, boredom, distraction into that? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I use the emotion wheel in a few ways. I, actually, I use that in feedback sessions as well. I say, you know, what, 
you know, what, what were you feeling? You know, if it's appropriate to what I'm trying to find out, but, you know, point to the emotions that you were feeling there. I have no problems with negative emotions as part of the process as well. Um, it's basically, I'm never continuously on. The times away, the times of frustration or something like that, that's all part of the process. Um, and I know just to step away if, if that is the case. Um, or I've found tricks to get through it. You know, I, yeah, I have multiple tricks to, to basically, if I have to deliver something in time, I have a trick to get my, you know, a few tricks that I use to get through that. Basically, I use by association, you know, mixing together things that shouldn't go together, and that sparks, that, that opens my mind uh, immediately. But yeah, I'm finding it is, if I aim for those emotions, the um, they're the ones that, make it easy for me to get into my practice, to get into that zone. Whereas the, uh, the negative emotions mean time away um, and it makes it harder for me to get into it. So yeah, I hope that, I hope that responds in, in the direction that you're thinking about. Yeah, I mean, I guess like it's, you know, creating an article, creating something is all of those emotions in a way. You know, it's like how you, you know, manage them and then bring them into the artwork. But yeah, that that process is very. Um, you know, you need you need that sort of self doubt sometimes as sort of inspiration <laughs> or just yeah. motivation even. Yeah, but thanks. That's that's a good response. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, I I mean, anger is one that you know is like that's that's one that drives me sometimes too, and I sometimes I need that to get through my blocks as well. But I think what I was talking about with those emotions, not that it's the only one, but that um, when I'm talking about designing a space, especially a, an online space with people, it's, it's probably, you know, it's about reorganizing the intention. It's less about what I do, but what I'm trying to do with that, you know. And so it's like any way that gets me to there uh, is helpful. Um, so Cynthia, sometimes though your associations are also an escape from a performance or art piece that doesn't really speak to you. Sorry, I feel that I'm being a bit negative here. No, that's fine. So I think you were talking about the feedback um, and the associations that one can have with that feedback. Yeah, but this is where as an artist, you sort of interpret, you know, you're not, you're not, you're, you're taking in, you know, how, how, you know, where someone's at. Um, and you decide to take in, take what, you know, what works with you and what doesn't. Yeah. You might sort of go, okay, that's, I think that's theirs. <laughs> or, you know, or you might go with it and, and, it, and it might, you know, create an interesting thing. Um, but you're not obliged to make something with their associations. You're not obliged to take that as golden. Yeah. Um, Olga. Hey, Olga. I think, I think she had to go. Um, Okay, uh, I don't have any questions, but I just want to say I appreciate this talk. Comment on multi-platform. If you focus on multi th multiple things, it doesn't mean you are lesser of an artist and vice versa. A great point I needed to hear. Thank you. Um, oh, yeah, she's got to run. Okay, yeah. Um, helpful to leave fixed ideas. Yes, Jane. Jane, did you want to say this verbally or did you want to um, um, keep it? You don't have to. <laughs> I can read it out. Okay, I'll read it out. Um, thank you so much for the lovely quote about weaving things into something beautiful. Oh, I'm so glad. I, I, oh, good. I, when I wrote that, I was like, oh, this rings true. But then I thought, oh, it sounds sounds wanky, but 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 it um, 
but yeah, it was it was what it's what I felt like. Um, I needed to hear that today. Thank you. <laughs> now I'm going away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, good. That's great to hear. I continually change mediums to suit the mood, feeling of a work, and I've worried that I'm not. Yeah, yeah, it's a long-term weaving. Yeah, great. Uh, yes, that's very useful talk, as the online can still be so um, vulnerable. Vulnerable, vulnerable. Yeah. Um, thank you, Yosef. Um, Sophia, Christy, would you mind sending a link to the ebook? Yes, I will. Uh, Sally, this has been so interesting and energizing. Do you have any suggestions for platforms that might be helpful to create work online? Um, so could you clarify what, what you mean um, by creating work online? Do you mean meeting online or making a different art form? Um, I guess I've got so many fields as possible in my head. I need to narrow that down. <laughs> um, I'll just find that link. Um, I gave a talk uh, for the Australia Council a couple of months ago, and there I talk about a few platforms. So I can give you the link to that. Um, but if you have specific um, specific ones that you're thinking about, um, I can I can help out there. Okay, in the chat now, I'm putting the link to Liz Lerman's critical response process. So I guess I have a, a question, and I'll, I'll put a link to my recordings where you where that Australia Council talk is, where I talk about a whole lot of different platforms in there. Um, who who is working with other artists online in some way, doing ideation or something? Like, who'd be willing to share uh, something about the way that they're making online with other artists? You can do it in text or, or verbal. Um, yeah, I've come from, hi, Christy and everyone. Hey. I've come from a background of hiding in a studio, making things and preferring to work that way. And now I'm finding having, well, being expected and realising I need to be online, finding that really awkward. Um, also refreshing. <laughs> I did a mentorship and we ended up doing that via Zoom and that was really interesting and it worked and my first reaction was to stop it and then we started and we found it really quite personal like really we could focus just on each other but what do you have advice for like <laughs> how do you be more comfortable online <laughs> <laughs> aren't, like. yeah so um i guess some other people can share um ways that they'd be more comfortable online i um i find i can get really overstimulated um, too, when I'm on long sessions with people. Um, so I found, for one thing, when I'm talking with people online, um, I try and either have gallery view or if I'm just talking with one person, I make sure their image is biggest, not mine. So I stop okay. looking at myself, right? That's an <laughs> important thing. Because that was, you know, it, it's painful uh, doing that. So that was an important thing. And, um, yeah, and I find... Uh, it's okay to, you know, turn off your camera and sort of, you know, phase out a bit, you know, um, and, and sort of come back in um, with with that online. Yeah, it's it's difficult. I think I'll make sure I feel comfortable with what is saying um, here. Um, you know, I'll have my um, 
and comfortable everywhere else. I've got my Ugg boots on, right? You know, make sure I'm completely comfortable here. Um, I always have water. Um, I usually have a candle uh, going to sort of get me into a bit of a space. Um, and those activities that I did at the beginning, for instance, of like connecting to our place and sharing that, that was also for me to sort of like, okay, stop, you know, just connect to the space. Um, yeah, so ha having those things I found would really help. Well, I think too, because the um, social rules of what happens in a group meeting is different to what happens online and um, trying to get your head around those, I think. There's a lot of awkward people like myself out there at the moment coming to grips with that. And I think that's yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so a big thing is I encourage chat and I use chat a lot. If I'm in someone else's sessions, I will basically share mostly via chat. And if they want, want to bring me up, you know, then I'll come up. Um, but I find chat is that comfortable place for me to just share thoughts um, rather than, you know, being on, you know, the whole time. Um, yeah, I, I, do, I put my hand up as well. I'm like, ah, can, can you see me? Um, I also use the raise hand button that's usually there. And I, I, I actually usually just press the raise hand button, just wait in case, you know, wait for them to, to, to call on me. Because um, I hate speaking over that thing of like speaking over, you know, lots of people there. Um, but I use chat a lot. That's my comfortable space of like, and I'm usually sharing thoughts as I go, which then loosens up other people, I think. Um, I think it's really important to not have to just have this verbal visual. You can, you can have this, you know, this other channel. Um, yeah. Thank you. All right. Sally said, as a performance artist, I've done things on Zoom, but interesting in taking text beyond the blog. And not a visual artist, so wondering if there are ways of playing with text. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, there are, you know, like I created those little chat games, you know, before, you know, in there. So you can do that. I've got the, we've got the live transcription as well. But yeah, you can have different interactions with text, um, different ways that, that people can play there. And even, you know, people turning off their screens, you know, and just using, and just using chat. Um, I know people have been coming up with role-playing games where people take on a character, so then they rename, rename their Zoom thing as a character, you know, and then they, like, you know, improvise, you know, certain things in the chat or something. Yeah, so Julianne um, shared Mila Note, which is fantastic. Um, it's, a, it's a great uh, platform uh, for using a conjunction uh, with Zoom. Yes, definitely. Do we have any other questions for, for Christy? Any other notes, any other points you want to end on, Christy? Yes, I'll just quickly um, uh, quickly share a screen just finally. This is one, another ritual or practice, which is common, uh, becoming more common now to, is a shout out to, um, for instance, you know, pay the rent um, to um, contribute, you know, a part and to encourage people uh, to contribute a part. And because I mentioned my card game, I thought I'll mention three cards that that are by people that I have cited in this talk. So, um, and, and by communities that I have cited. So the first one is um, the Gadha cards, um, which are a, a 
great set of cards um, and they're by the um, Murawen Indigenous-owned business and they're a facilitation tool um, about um, uh, belonging and coming together. The second is um, by Ricky, um, the quote about the bedridden um, creative writer who wrote the quote about not wanting accessibility to go away. She's created um, this self-care kit um, because she says most, most of the self-care is about people, you know, having money or being able to go out and do things. This is a self-care kit for things that you can do, you know, right in your own space. Um, and the third card set, and I'll give you the links to these if, you, if you're after them. The third card set is um, uh, from Vanessa, who I gave the quote about the different acknowledgements to land at the beginning of this talk. She's part of a collective called Decolonial Futures. Uh, and this is a, um, without modernity, a decolonial card set um, process. And uh, it's a fantastic um, card set there. So those are uh, three projects that, you know, I, I recommend to not, not pay it forward, but to, to, to pass on um, right at the end here. Thank you, everybody. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, and for, for joining for joining this chat. And thank you once again to Christy. That was such an informative um, session that I think will um, kind of fester with people thinking about how they will interact and um, plan those interactions going forward. So thank you so and th much. And thank you again um, for the in invitation. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.